You're listening to the Hazard Ground Podcast with service members from across the military sharing their stories of combat and survival. And now, here's your host, Mark Zeno. Welcome into the Hazard Ground Podcast. As always, we appreciate you joining us each and every week. Before we get to this week's guest, a member of the United States Navy for over 27 years, multiple combat deployments, and a very interesting podcast that's sort of in the same realm of the Hazard Ground. We'll get to that coming up in just a moment. But a few reminders, uh, please continue the Amazon promotion. It is going very well. You guys are doing an awesome job. Go to our website, hazardground.com. Scroll all the way down to the bottom of the homepage or click on that Amazon button. It'll redirect you to Amazon. You can do all of your normal Amazon shopping, whatever you need to buy, whatever you want to get. Shop away. We'll get a percentage of what you guys spend, then we'll donate a percentage of that back to some of the charities and organizations you've heard featured here on the show. So it's an easy way for you guys to help out veterans charities just by going to hazardground.com first to do all of your Amazon shopping. Again, hazardground.com. Amazon button at the bottom of the homepage. Please continue to leave the Apple reviews. They're coming in fast and furious. We love it. Send more of them. Uh, we'll want to put them up on social media. And full disclosure, I know I'm bad about checking our social media sites, Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. at has a ground and has a ground podcast. Uh, but I do check it. And I promise I will get back to all of you if you write me. If you got a guest suggestion, go to hazardground.com as well. Click on the Contact Us button and uh, fill out the form. And that's another easiest. That's probably the easier way to get in contact with the show. It's just go to the website and do that first. So, again, don't forget about our social media uh, sites, Hazard Ground, Hazard Ground Podcast. Uh, leave Apple reviews and continue to use HazardGround.com for your Amazon uses. And subscribe to the YouTube channel. Smash the like button. Give a thumbs up to all the content there. Just search Hazard Ground on YouTube and you'll get everything you need right there. We appreciate all the love and support. All right, this week's guest uh, is still a current serving member of the United States Navy. He's been with over 27 years of service, holding the rank of commander. She currently is the PAO of the Maritime Branch of NATO, which is... Crazy, because, you know, NATO is a weird place these nowadays. Three deployments, uh, combat deployments, including one with the Navy SEALs and the Army SF. Uh, she holds two master's degrees and has a podcast called the SOS Podcast, Stories of Service, much similar to what we do here on the Hazard Ground. She's joining us live from the UK. It is Teresa Carpenter here on the Hazard Ground Podcast. Teresa, welcome, and thank you so much for being here. Thank you, Mark. Uh, very, very kind introduction, and I'm excited to be here and have this conversation. So thank you so much. You're welcome. And it was kind and true. That was the most important part of it. Uh, you and I actually connected on LinkedIn, which has I found is like the veteran space on LinkedIn is is crazy. Um, and, and for people who are listening to this, watching it, if you're not on LinkedIn and, and get on LinkedIn, just connect in the veteran space. There are so many amazing people there doing so many amazing things in their post-military career. Um, I, I know there are a lot of people on there who are in the military still like yourself, and they tread a lot more lightly. Uh, because of the, the worries, but you have a very open sort of saying, I don't else. necessarily do that. But well, yes. I, I know, but I, I know <laughs> you know, kind of what I appreciate about you. I mean, look, it even says change agent on your, on your LinkedIn page, where they, which I think is amazing. And I think the podcast is, is a big part of that, but I was excited to tell your story because you have a lot of different views than like I do sort of about the military and when it's, where it's gone and what you've done over your career. And, uh, it's a very diverse career. So I'm, I'm, I'm glad that you're here and I'm glad you're willing to do this. Awesome. Yeah, I, I am definitely so excited to be here. And you're right. LinkedIn has opened up so many doors for me uh, personally. I was I was active on Facebook for a number of years. I had a blog. So I, I've I've done online communications for, for quite quite a while, even in my personal off-duty life. 
but LinkedIn has really been that, that game changer um, and has connected me to so many more people and allowed me to, to continue to, to share not only now my story, but then the stories of others. No, absolutely. And we'll get to SOS uh, podcast here coming up a little bit, but uh, start at the beginning, 27 years. Uh, how and why'd you get in Navy? So I'm originally from Columbus, Ohio, which is not a area that's all that familiar with military service, although people there are very patriotic. Or water for that matter. Yes, yes. Um, Navy was not anybody's uh, thought uh, when they they had in mind when they when they thought of myself. Um, I I grew up in a uh, middle class, I would say upper middle class neighborhood. Um, I went to Catholic private schools. Uh, My mom and dad are are still together. Um, We live in a in a very nice older home and they're, they're actually still in that same home. And when I joined the Navy, I was 19 years old. I had worked a series of low-wage, menial jobs, um, and I didn't feel like I was really going anywhere. I had moved out of my mom and dad's house at a pretty young age. Um, the year I turned 17, I spent my senior year in high school actually living on my own and had just kept kind of going, cycling in and out of jobs. I worked at a clothing store. I worked at a uh, restaurant busing tables. I was a hostess. I even worked for a place called Victoria's Secret Catalog, answering telephone calls through through the catalogs back in the day. And, uh, and then another phone center as well. And at that point, I was frustrated. I, I was burnt out. And I just thought that there had to be something else out there for me, but I I wasn't really keen on understanding myself well enough to know what type of a career I wanted to have. So I was living with a a gentleman who was in the Marine Corps reserves and he started talking to me about the military. And so I looked at my options at home, not being able to make my ends meet and not being able to pay my debts off because I was spending all my money on the discounted clothing from Victoria's Secret Catalog. And so uh, I ended up visiting a recruiter and I didn't want to go into the Marines of the Army. I was a little weary of that um, because I didn't know anything about the military at all anyway. And so I thought, well, Navy is water and I'll get to travel and that might be kind of cool but I don't know what I want to do. I don't know who I want to be. I mean, I was just, I was really kind of directionless in terms of, in terms of my career and storytelling. I mean, I never would have thought that I'd end up, you know, where I am today. So I I spoke to a recruiter and uh, he told me about all the travel opportunities and really kind of got deep with me about what, what I was really trying to do and why I wanted to better myself. And it was, it was actually kind of one of those heart to heart kind of mentoring recruiters actually, um, who took me in the back room and we just talked and talked and talked. And he said, well, I've got an opportunity for you. I said, he said, um, I can make you what's called an air crewman. And I didn't know what air crew meant. I didn't know if that was a good deal or a bad deal. I knew it had something to do with aviation. Um, and I never fixed things growing up. I was not a gearhead or any of those things, but I just kind of thought like, gosh, this will get me out of my hometown. This will help me pay off my bills and, this will give me some direction in my life. And so uh, I did it. And uh, my friends were floored because I was a partier. And I, I, all I did was go out and drink and spend all my money. And uh, no one could understand or believe that, that I did this. And uh, yeah, that, that's kind of the start and how I got into the military. Good to know that, uh, you know, all the partiers alike found their way into the military. I mean, at some, <laughs> some point in time that that skill comes in handy in the military at some 
certain junctures throughout your career. Uh, doesn't always lead to good things, but you know, it's a, it's a, it's a skill you should keep in your back pocket. Uh, I joke, but uh, all it's things. A so, it's a good social skill. No, I yeah, mean, there, there I, it is. That, that's, that's yeah. a better way to phrase it. Yeah. Uh, I'm, I'm much more uh, direct in my, my phrasing as it's gotten me in trouble over the years, but that's you know, I mean, so nice do you start, do you start this, this whole journey, not knowing where it's going to go. Um, as you, you depart, are you, is there any hesitation? Is, I mean, is there any point in the beginning where you thought you made a bad decision, made the wrong decision, wanted to take it back? How did that go? <laughs> oh, yeah. Um, well, when I first uh, started going into the process, I mistakenly thought I was going into the reserves. <laughs> and it wasn't until I got into the MEP station that it was kind of explained to me that this was like a, a full-time thing that I was going to do all the time. Like, and But I didn't really think to say no. I mean, there was also a guy that I was, you know, friends with and kind of seeing at the time. And he sort of talked me into it as well. And I, I just thought, man, like, I'll make some good money. I'll, I'll, I'll get out of my hometown. I'll learn a skill. Maybe, maybe they can teach me how to do something that makes more money than waiting tables. I, you know, I was just kind of open, open to it. And, and it was a leap of faith. Because like I said, there was nothing I could compare it to and say, oh, well, this is this is how it's going to be. And so um, I was really scared, to be honest, uh, that that night before I left for boot camp, I just thought, like, what the heck have I done? Like, what what is the, what is this? Because because no, like I said, nobody I grew up with was in the military. I didn't know anybody in the military. And, and all my friends just just thought it was this insane, funny thing that I did. I remember one night we were out drinking and we got all, we all got drunk and they started, they kept singing that stupid in the Navy song to me over and over again, just giving me crap about it and going, Oh my God, Terry. That's why I went by Terry. Terry's going to join the military. What the fuck? Like no one could believe it. (laughs) Like they just didn't believe like a person like me would ever end up in the service. Now, was was combat even in your mind? Like, was the idea of being on a a naval warship anywhere in your mind? Was was any of that like did it even cross your mind when you had started? Because we're in a pre nine eleven world, mm-hmm. right? And we were in peacetime, you know, at the time. So I, I never thought in a million years that any of this would would end up in a. I would end up in combat zones. I would end up part of like major major operations that were very geopolitically significant. No, I, I, and I wasn't even really uh, concerned about that because I had steered away from the Marines and the Navy. I mean, the Marines and the Army. And I so I thought in my mind, like, I'm in the Navy. Well, what can happen? Like it, nothing, you know, and I kind of also had this sort of attitude like I, I can get I'll figure it out, you know, and I, and I still sometimes have that same attitude. So I, I think in, in my mind, I just I just went for it. You know, I, I took a leap of faith that it was going to work out. So where does it actually start for you after, you know, your initial training, your Mm -hmm. first duty assignment, everything? Yeah. So after Great Lakes, uh, Illinois, where we do our initial training, um, I initially went to Pensacola, Florida, and that's where I started my air crew school. And um, that was an amazing experience. Uh, I had never done any of those type of um, that type of training where you're basically learning how to do all the different swim strokes the proper way, because it's all training you that if your aircraft goes down, um, are you going to be able to survive? So I had to go through like, um, there was a, I mean, it was a series of schools after uh, Pensacola. I got moved to um, Millington because all the A schools moved. uh, Well, actually I went to air crew school. Then I went to my A school, which is aviation electricians mate school. And then I even had to go to SEER school that was in my pipeline, which is survival, evasion, yeah, resistance and escape. That's that's the one school I wish the military had sent me to. 
That's the when I heard about that, I'm like, I want to do that. That's the one I want to do. <laughs> I know people was- went through there, and I'm like, okay, I I want to see if I can survive that. That that to me seemed cool. Like that seems like a course where, even though it's kind of it's obviously geared military, but like mm-hmm. those are skills you can use in oh, life. Yeah. Like oh, yeah. those, those are mental traits that are going to to help you survive life. I mean, it really just brings you together with your team. I mean, because you're you're with, of course, a few other people that are all doing the same thing that you're doing, and you even have like this little stratified rank structure. And yep. I I had a good experience for what it was. I was just grateful that I got through it. I mean, because you of course you get captured, and then there's this whole experience. I mean, of, of what happens once you're in captivity and and all those things. Um, but no, absolutely. I mean, the, the, all the schooling I went, I went through a year and a half of schooling before I got to my first duty station in Iceland. And so I uh, really appreciated the different experiences that I was getting when I was going through this pipeline, because I, I, I mean, it was a lot. I went through, I got trained how to fix aircraft. I got trained how to uh, survive as an air crewman, um, you know, how to do all the different things that you would have to do if your, if your, if your helicopter or your aircraft went down. And then I got to get trained in how to the P3s. Like I got like over an indoctrination in P3s down in Jacksonville. And then I got sent to Keflavik, Iceland to work on the base P3 there um, before when they had um, a NAS Keflavik. It was Naval Air Station Keflavik. And that was my first duty station. Wow. Okay. So um, that's a lot. After SEER school, I'm still still blown away by that. Uh where, where, where do you end up? Like, where, where do you end up as far as your first actual duty assignment? What are you doing there? So I was a in-flight technician. So I would uh, ride in the aircraft as a, um, mostly as a glorified flight attendant, to be honest, because it was a VIP um, MWR aircraft. And so I, and, and, and to be honest, I was only there for about a year and a half. I think it was supposed to be looking, I don't remember if it was a four or five year tour, but um, I had some mental health issues and I ended up leaving that duty station early, earlier than was, was planned. Right. So I was there for a year and a half. I fixed aircraft, got a bunch of qualifications. That's a big thing in the, in the maintainer world is once you're aircraft maintainer, you're constantly working on, they call getting your quals. And so you have to learn how to use every single piece of equipment that's going to allow your aircraft to fly and allow your your boxes to turn on and to do what they need to do. Because most of the time, you know, they're not going to turn on what they call the auxiliary power unit, or they're not going to rev up the engines just to fix your systems. So you have to learn how to, how to operate any, the testing equipment that you need in order to run, run the systems that you need to make sure that when you're troubleshooting, you're identifying uh, what, what needs to be fixed. And so, um, yeah, so I, I was there for a year and a half, and like I said, I had the nervous breakdown, um, and I, I got shipped back to Great Lakes, Illinois, and I was supposed to get processed out of the Navy, and instead, I fought my med board and, and stayed into the Navy. What um, what go more into this this whole um, mental breakdown here, and, and kind of what you know led to it. Uh, I mean, was it anything military related, or it was personal life stuff? It was it was totally personal life. Um, okay. So just to paint the picture, I, I went to that duty station, um, still pretty uh, naive and emotionally immature. And I got into a few relationships with people at my workplace that did not go uh, very well. And I very much regret what was happening in those relationships, to be honest with you. 
And it was one of those situations where my chain of command got involved because the person that I was involved with had some legal problems and was, and so uh, I was very embarrassed. I was ashamed of what was going on and I just couldn't handle the stress of it because that was my only support system that I had. I didn't have any friends. I, I was so attached to this one particular individual and, and the interactions that we were having. And in my own mind, it was like almost like a death because I just didn't have a, a, a very good support. I had not built a good support system around me. And um, at, in my mind, it was like I said, it was almost like you're just dying because you just don't have um, those people in your life that you can depend on. And so I became psychotic, to be honest. I mean, I'm just going to be very blunt about that. Um, and I don't know if it was a combination of lack of sleep, being amped up on coffee. I still to this day can't completely explain what happened because it went on and off for about a month. And uh, they didn't really know what to do with me because of the stuff I was saying and the, and the ways in which I was acting. And so they made an, after they tried sending me home, that didn't work. I was still sort of crazy at home and went to a psych ward at home. And then when I came back, I was still acting weird and saying very strange things that they couldn't understand or decipher. And I remember thinking all I really wanted was them to just talk to me and to understand me, but that was not going to happen. They, they just needed to know what to do with me. And in that situation, they're not, you know, they're not, they're not equipped and mental health was not the thing back then that it is now. And so the best thing to do with someone in that circumstance, in their opinion, was to process me out. And so that's what they tried to do. Yeah. That was going to be my next question was like, I mean, you know, the military sort of, you know, they try to keep things in a very black and white area, right? They don't, Mm -hmm. they don't like to operate in, in gray. Uh, it's not their specialty because there's a manual somewhere that says this. And if it's in there, then we have to do it. And we don't have any recourse otherwise. Absolutely. Uh, but to, to that end, I mean, you, you know, I know you mentioned before you fought the med board. I did. Uh, was there anybody like in your chain of command who was like, you know, either advocating for you to get out or saying, hey, don't worry, Teresa, we're going to do everything we can possible to, to keep you here. Or, you know, I mean, what was that whole process like? So when I got to Great Lakes, um, I ended up getting out of the psych ward almost immediately because I got off the meds and then I stopped. Well, they, they threatened to kick me out <laughs> and, and, and I was so afraid of having to go back home. <laughs> so my motivation was I've got to get better and stop saying these weird things and thinking these weird things. And so, um, I just basically faked it till I made it and said, okay, my mission in life is going to be to stay in the military because I need this money and I need to pay off my debts. And, and I knew at that point I hadn't paid off all my debts and I didn't want to go back home. I wasn't close with my mom and dad. And so I didn't feel like I had any other option. And so I just became very single-handedly focused on I'm going to stay in the Navy and do whatever it takes to stay in. And throughout that process, I mean, I found God. <laughs> I, I worked out all the time. Um, I actually built a really good support system and, um, it was probably the first time I had ever had like friends outside the, the party realm, you know, ever since I, you know, when I was a real little kid, I had that, but not in high school or post high school. And I started building really steady friends. In fact, one, I, I still keep in touch with to this day. And I think that was part of the, the advocacy was just the, those people around me. And I did join a support group 
Um, there was a social worker there who led a, a great support group at the hospital. And I was the only one that was staying in. Everybody else, it was a discharge planning group. And it was for people that were all getting kicked out. And I was like the one person in the group that was like, well, no, I'm, I'm fighting my board. I'm appealing it. And so I, I just, and I would just write, let, I wrote a letter to appeal the board, the first med board. And then I got a psychologist that I was seeing out as an outpatient to say, yes, she's good to go. And the physical evaluation board people said, wait a minute, one doctor, the one who admitted you in the hospital said that you were crazy. This other guy thinks that you're fine. Great Lakes, get your act together and make one decision. So that's why this whole thing dragged out for almost a year. And so um, after that, uh, I didn't fight the second time, the second board that they wrote me and they found me down because they can't have two people who disagree. I didn't fight it. And then they still found me fit because I probably because I had appealed the first board and I wrote two congressmen. Um, I never heard back other than, oh, we're looking into your case, nothing else. Um, mm -hmm. But so to this day, I don't know if that had anything to do with it. But that was my first um, that was my first foray into advocacy. So that was Which the first time I ever thought. Hmm? Right. I mean, it, it makes total sense, um, you know, from the standpoint of this catapulting you into advocacy, I mean. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, it, it really, when you think about it, like, I don't think I'd be the quote unquote change agent <laughs> that I am today if I hadn't had to fight for my career at such a young age. But it really, and it, it taught me so much too. It taught me a lot about mental health. It taught me a lot about the system. Um, you know, it was, it was definitely a, um, resilience building process. All right. So you get through the med board and everything else, yeah. where do you settle next? So I, I, I lost my ability. I lost my, um, flight status. So I could no longer go into an aircrew billet. Uh, they said because of the condition and because I had a, I had a diagnosis of psychotic disorder and otherwise specified. So that was on my record. Um, and that did follow me around, followed me around all my enlisted career. Um, wow. yeah. And I had to fight it. Like I had to get evaluations anytime I wanted to do like, oh, you want to get back seat qualified on your aircraft. Oh, now you got to go see the psych, the psych lady. Um, so I hated psych and I, and I hated mental health and I wouldn't, and that was, that's a whole other conversation, but I, I just, I had this stigma in my mind too, about mental health, like, because I saw that like, oh shit. If I say I have any problems, then they're going to kick me out. So I'm never going to tell anybody that I ever have any problems ever again. And, uh, you know, which is not the right answer. And and so, but I, I did okay. I did really, you know, well, I think. I, I went to a aviation squadron, uh, S3s, and I worked on the anti-submarine warfare aircraft, the S3B Viking. And I stayed at that squadron for four or five years. And that's where I got picked up to be an officer. So uh, immediately following uh, this experience, um, I, I go to, you know, VS-35, Blue Wolves, and um, I, I work my way up to E-5. Um, I'm a final checker troubleshooter, so I launch and recover aircraft on the flight deck. And uh, that's where we are involved in combat operations. Uh, like I say, the, the um, Iraq, uh, war in Iraq, the shock and awe campaign in um started in, I want to say 2002, September, 2002 is where we got turned around or around that time, um, where we were supposed to go, you know, home. And then we all came back and, uh, we were involved in that campaign. And that is right around the time I got picked up for Seaman to Admiral, which is my commissioning program. I mean, I I'm curious how with the stigma that you had would have been stapled to your career about your mental health, that you were able to get into the officer world. I feel like that is something that would have been a disqualifier. 
it, it was incredibly hard. So what I did is even before I put the package in, I went and saw a psychiatrist, psychologist, and they said that I was fit to put in an officer package. And at that point, I hadn't had any issues, like I said, since that incident. I wasn't on any medication, no nothing. And so they said I was okay, because I guess they just couldn't say that there was something wrong with me, because there wasn't at that time. And and I don't think the rules were as set in stone about these officer programs. Like, I, I wonder if today... Um, with these, with the same diagnosis, but I would have been able to get in. Um, but they said I was fit to put in the package. Um, and then once I got picked up, then they wanted to see all my medical records again. And I was like, oh man, they're going to dig. They're going to know. And I was very honest with my commanding officer, uh, to, to his credit, um, just very grateful for him to this day. He went to bat for me. So he went, I was on the aircraft carrier, the USS Abraham Lincoln, and he went and saw the ship psychologist and had to sit down with her. I sat down with her, got this big report, and they all supported me and said she is she should become a naval officer. And so we went back to Great Lakes, and I mean not Great Lakes, but we went back to Bumed, a Bureau of Medicine, and they agreed uh, to send to write me a waiver. And that was sort of the end of this. So, other than my uh, secret clearance when uh, upon commission, that was the one last time I had to. Uh, deal with it. Uh, now it's, it's long gone. It's ancient history, but uh, yeah, it was, it was definitely something that was, that was painful that I had to continue to talk about and, and revisit over and over again and prove that I was okay, which made it really hard for me to ever seek mental health services until now. In fact, I'm in therapy now, and it's the first time I've really sought routine therapy um, other than military one source since this incident. And it's because I had such a stigma because of what had happened. But again, I, I did it to myself. I mean, I can't blame anyone. Again, I'm all about accountability. And uh, I, I do believe that uh, this experience uh, really made me who I am today. Well, again, I mean, uh, to, to phrase it as I, can't, I have nobody to blame but myself is from the outside looking in is a little harsh. Um, I would tell you that, yes, taking accountability for it is important, but um, there is a certain amount of we need to evaluate the individual uh, and where they are, not just what we read on a piece of paper about them. And that's what's sort of bad sometimes about the military. Again, when we have these waiver systems and everything else, they never really actually sit down and talk to a person. What they do is they look at a packet and a file and a letter of recommendation, everything else. And they decide from there without ever meeting the individual, whether this is somebody that we find worthy or not, you know, I mean, those, those sort of review boards and boards that go, it's not like the old NCO, I'm an army guy. It's not like the NC, old NCO boards where you just have to stand in front of everybody and there'd be a whole room looking at you and asking you questions and asking you to prove your competence mm-hmm. in those boards. We don't do those as much anymore. But when it comes to like medical stuff, this particularly, um, and the sessions, it's all paperwork in a room with people who have never met you, have never seen you and have no idea where you are. And so one or two subjective evaluations on anything, whether it's performance, potential, you know, medical could, mm-hmm. could obviously send your career in one, one direction or another. So uh, I think there's, I, I think there's, you know, I don't want perfect to be the enemy of good in a sense where there, there might be a better system. I don't need it to be perfect, but there might be better than what, what, what we have in, in these, in these situations. Well, so and you, the problem is, is that the people who are evaluating you for your officer program, you stand in front of them and all you talk about is your performance. You don't talk about the wholesaler, right? 
Like they, they don't, they don't ask those kinds of questions because no one wants to talk about their personal life or their personal issues. And so the only, and the only time that they're even going to know any of that is if you volunteer that information. And so there's just no real opportunity, uh, for people to see what you, what it is, who you are as a, as a whole person uh, for these evaluation boards. It, it's, it definitely is something that could be better. I agree. So when you get through this whole process and you get your commission, you start your, now, are you, do you know what you want to do as an officer at this point in time, or are you kind of leaving it up to whoever, whatever they think? So when I put in my stay 21 package, um, I had always grown up thinking I was maybe wanting to be a social worker. I'm adopted. And so I've always had sort of a soft spot for people that have had um, trauma in in their background. And so I thought that would be a really good thing, although there's no social workers in the Navy. So I thought, well, maybe nurse, nurse is something that I could do that maybe I'd be good at. Again, I I had written a journal in, in high school and, or I'm sorry, grade school and was very praised for it. And I even met with a journalist when I was in eighth grade on this like career day, but I hadn't really connected the pieces about me perhaps being a communicator. Like that just didn't even really register in my brain at that point that that was something I would want to do. And so I sort of leaned towards some sort of social services or helping a helping profession. And I didn't get selected for that. And so I got selected for what they call the URL program, unrestricted line. So I'm like, okay, it's called, they had, they had like, it was, I think it was called the core option. And so when I, when I got selected for that, it was, I could go, uh, I, there was no subservice option for women at the time. So I think it was a pilot NF, uh, NFO or, uh, yeah, pilot NFO or SWO, surface warfare officer and surface warfare officer was the most generic one that anyone could get into kind of thing, which later on, I find out like how, how hard it is really to be a SWO. But uh, I, I just thought, well, that's, that's just a good entry into the, into the real Navy, you know, like, cause I come from the aviation community where we aviators, we kind of looked at like that. We call them the brown shoe ratings versus the black shoe ratings. We just, we sit, we saw the, the ship's company differently. And I thought, well, I've already done the aviation field. I know that field. I don't want to be a pilot. I don't want to be an NFO. Why don't I just go slow? That that might be kind of cool. I'll get into the into the black shoe, the heart of the Navy, right? Where we drive warships and we work in combat and we work in engineering. And so um, that was that was what I chose to do. All right. So um, by the way, where is nine eleven happening in all of this? So. 9-11. Had it happened yet by the time you were an officer? Yes. No? Oh, yes. Because I was enlisted when we went into Iraq. So okay. the so I remember even when the coal got attacked, I was on deployment. So I did yeah. a series of deployments on USS Abraham Lincoln when I was with uh, um, VS-35. So I had already seen the difference of in tempo and in operations between steady state peacetime and let's go to war. And now things that you would never call up on an aircraft, you're just going to go, Oh, it's good to go. You don't might not need that backup to the backup to the backup. Um, so I had already gotten a kind of a, a taste for what life was like in a, in a, in a combat environment, not of course being shot or being shot at, but in a much more pressurized and stressful environment. So, um, as I got into my uh, officer schools, that the the nine eleven and the war in Iraq and Afghanistan was already going on, um, and I was going through school at that time. So I was going through Worcester State College, 
Um, I had uh, gone to my officer schools. They call them the knife and fork schools in Rhode Island. Uh, that's where you just learn how to be an officer. You go to Naval Science Institute courses and things like that. And I had met my um, ex-husband out in Rhode Island. And the decision was made for me to stay there with his family and stay local. And so I decided to go to college in Worcester, Massachusetts. And uh, that's where I got my undergrad. Um, I was part of the Holy Cross Consortium. That's a Holy Cross. Inter oh, and I was part of an inner OTC unit. So I had to be, um, I wouldn't call it a midshipman. I think they called us officer candidates. So I had to uh, do all that as a fleet returnee. And um, it was a interesting experience. I had to take a regatta course, um, you know, do a bunch of what we call maneuvering board training and, and all these things. Um, but like I said, I was in my late 20s. And most everybody else was in their late teens, early 20s. All right. So all this is and I guess I kind of, you know, glossed over it mistakenly. But, you know, we talked about the idea of you going to war and everything else before. And and I guess the personal stuff had sort of superseded any idea that that would come into your your view. Right. I mean, you weren't it was the furthest thing from your mind while you're going through all the med board stuff and everything else. Well, the med board stuff had already ended by the time the Iraq and Afghanistan stuff had started. Okay. So at this point, I'm just I'm just AE2 or AE3 Pickard. That was my maiden name. And I was, you know, wearing my tool pouch and going out there to fix aircraft problems. I was a maintainer. Um, so if you know anything about aircraft maintainers, I mean it's a it's a it's a rough lifestyle. <laughs> I mean, you're 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 working constantly, you're dirty every day, you're you're uh, constantly trying to figure out how to how to insert very small parts in crazy crevices all over the aircraft. Um, you're very frustrated sometimes because you'll try six things and then the seventh thing might actually fix the airplane. But um, you're you're using schematics every day, you know, using your multimeter, going out there. I mean, I was a tech, I was a gearhead, which is crazy now when I look right. back on it because my husband's like, "How in the hell did you ever know how to fix anything?" And, <laughs> you know, <laughs> <laughs> not the homemaker you thought you were going to be, I guess. No, I no. Um, all right. So kind of fast forwarding a little bit, when do you get to your first deployment then? So, yeah. So, so your first deployment as an officer or first deployment enlisted? As an officer. Okay. Yeah. So first employment as an officer was as my, as a surface warfare officer, I did a surge deployment with USS uh, Russell. Uh, so that is a DDG. Um, DDG 5-9. And uh, he's now an admiral. Admiral Brad Cooper was my commanding officer. Actually, it started off as admiral, and he's also an admiral, I think, uh, John Kirby or Jim Kirby. And then John Kirby's uh, running. No, John Kirby's the Pentagon spokesperson. No, yeah. there's, there's another Kirby. <laughs> John Kirby? Okay. Yeah, I think he's a fleet. He's the fleet forces deputy right now, but he was my first commanding officer. And I only was with him for a couple months. And then uh, now Admiral Cooper took over and we went on a surge deployment. I actually met them while they were still deployed. So they were coming off the tail end of their deployment. Then we went on the surge deployment. So I did just some mini, I would call them mini deployments where we went to mostly um, Asia Pacific area. So I did those um, with USS Russell and that's where I got my surface warfare officer pin. That was a very good experience. I was in an amazing, what we call an award room with great officers. And I wasn't a part of that many operationally relevant 
events, if I can remember correctly, although I'd probably have to go back. I was, I was only there for about a year and a half. Um, I do believe we had, we did some stuff that was involved with North Korea during that time. Um, but then I went to, after that, <laughs> this is where I have to kind of remember, this is where I got into the PAO community. So right. well, that was, that. I was going to ask you about next. Yep. Yep. Yeah. So, so I mean, that, is that something you wanted to do or is it Navy directed? Oh, no. So when I was going through my officer program, I spent one summer at a muscular dystrophy camp and I met a Navy, uh, I met some people that were Navy journalists and they told me that there was this thing called PAO. I had no idea. Didn't even know there were MCs. That's that. I just, as an Airedale and a, on a, as a, I mean, I think I may have seen them on the carrier. I just wasn't really aware of what they did or, or had a lot of visibility or interaction with PAOs. In fact, I even had a New York times reporter who uh, interviewed me when during the war uh, and while I was in the library working on my enlisted surface warfare qualification. And I didn't even know that there was this PAO team and, and all these things. So I found out about it. And as soon as I found out about it, I was like, whoa, that's something I could do and maybe be really good at. And I just remember like a light bulb went off because it was almost like, wait a second, I've, I've been doing this job that I don't really love for all these years, but it's the Navy. And I do like being in the Navy. What if I found something in the Navy that I actually loved doing? What would that be like? And so uh, that was how I got started. And I, and I made my master's, I mean, my, my undergrad, uh, a communications undergrad, I, I, mar I interned at a newspaper. And then uh, when, as soon as I got to my ship, my first ship, Russell, that DDG, I asked them to make me the collateral duty PAO. And so that's where I started building my resume. And I, and I learned how to take photos on a ship. I learned how to write articles. I, I was taught by an MCC, a chief, Chief Rush at Navy Region uh, Hawaii. He and I would go back and forth and I'd edit, we'd edit stories together. And so I, I just learned on the job uh, how, to, how to do all these things. We didn't have a mass communication specialist embarked on the ship or any of that back then. I, I just picked up a camera and started trying to take pictures and learn and, and make a lot of mistakes and, and, and just keep doing it over and over again. Wow. Pretty amazing. Um, so you embark on this. Um, well, you know, before we get to the, the PAO stuff, you actually did the deployment with the SEALs and Army SF, right? So the Army SEALs and SF deployment was an individual augmentee assignment. Right. So during um, the whole, uh, you know, Iraq and Afghanistan era, they were pulling people from other services to assist um, the, you know, the Navy, the army and the Marine Corps, and primarily they were starting to send people on individual augmentee assignments. So they were a lot of billets and opportunities to send people, um, to combat zones. And I ended up going to the Philippines. So in the Southern Philippines, um, in Zambuanga, in the base, it's a Philippine armed forces of the Philippines base called in Mindanao, they have a uh, they had a military uh, presence, a U.S. military presence, and it was comprised of trainers who would train, advise, and assist uh, armed forces of the Philippines with their um, Abu Sayyaf um, terrorism issue. So 
there was a, there was a very, and, and there were some people who felt that there was ties to Al-Qaeda. So that was sort of the tie to, to GWAT, the global war on terrorism. And so I went down there for six months as their public affairs officer for Jasotif, Joint Special Operations Task Force Philippines. Mm. I had Joint Special Operations Task Force AP, Arabian Peninsula. Okay. So you were P, I was AP back in the day. Gotcha, uh, gotcha. Yeah, it's all it's all CJ Soda Combined Joint Special Operations Task Force. It's a nice big acronym. Um, yes. Is this a, you know, th- and this is your first real foray into like the PAO combat realm, correct? Oh yeah. I mean, I had I'd gone to Russell and played PAO for you know about a year as I was getting my service warfare officer pin and getting into the community. But I when I went over to Pacific Fleet, I was still in Hawaii at the time. They made me the community relations director, and I was doing that for a while, and I was helping, you know, get the aircraft uh, carriers uh, DVs. So they would send people that were educators and other kind of influencers out to the carrier when it would pull around in the Hawaii operation area. But during that time, this opportunity came up, and they needed someone to to go serve a six-month um, individual augmentee assignment in the Philippines. And I really didn't understand what it was, you know, why we were there, uh, what the mission or the role of of the U.S. forces were uh, there. But that's what really taught me everything about like embassies. Like I didn't understand any of that or HADR. So while I was there, there was a huge flood. Uh, In fact, the day I got there, uh, I'm literally relieving Laura Bollinger and we are working side by side in I want to say, were we in Manila? Yeah, we went up to Manila and we were working side by side on flood relief efforts and going out to a, I I remember I I went out with my camera and I took a picture of the seals rescuing people off of a bridge with their, um, like the rib boat. And I remember just thinking like, how bizarre is this? I'm standing in flood water with my camera and I've been on the ground for two weeks and I'm already taking these pictures and, and covering the, the, this this historical event. I mean, it was just, it was really surreal. And, and one of the pictures I ended up taking ended up in Life Magazine. And I mean, it, was, it wasn't an amazing photo, but it was one of those things where I was really just close to what was happening. And I was always the kind of person that would just run into what, you know, I, I mean, I'm not afraid to, to, to get dirty or to, or, or to get into the mix of things. And so, um, yeah. And were you were you accepted by how did how did the the special operations guys look at the PAO world at that point in time? It depended it depended on the PAO, you know. I mean, I I was because I I didn't complain and I didn't um I just wanted to be there and I wanted to cover them and I wanted to take pictures and I wanted to tell their story and they knew that I was genuine. And so I never encountered I never had a bad experience there. I, I really respected the SF guys and and the Navy SEALs. And I always felt like they gave me tons of access. And I felt their very blunt and direct demeanor was something that I could identify with because I am so blunt and so direct. And so for me, it was it was a great experience, to be honest with you. I, I I mean, it was hard and I, and I got frustrated being stuck in Zambo and Zambuango sometimes because I wanted to get down. Like we had like task force Sulu, we had uh 
Basilon. We had all these different outposts. And so my, my thing was one of our PIOs had to always be in Manila and doing the embassy stuff. And then someone like me, who's lower ranking could, could be down, down South. And so I was just always trying to angle to get on trips and, and to go places and to be where we were either, you know, conducting a class or we were doing, um, some sort of, uh, training or, or, or doing a rescue mission. Like sometimes we would do HADR and then sometimes we would actually do operations. And of course I couldn't cover any of that. So that was probably the hardest part too, is that there were still some things that I wasn't privy to because of being the PAO. And, and there were a lot of restrictions with the embassy because there were sensitivities about special forces being in the Philippines. There was, there was a lot of, um, whole push and pull between us and the embassy. And that's why I learned all the nuances of, the military and the state department and the differences between the two. Uh, yeah. That's a whole different podcast. In and of yes. Yes. Um, let me ask you, because, you know, again, now the Navy at this point, when you're in the Philippines in 2008, 2009, you know, the Navy has a full on role in Iraq and Afghanistan that go well beyond just being on a ship in a port waiting for, you mm-hmm. know, something to happen. Or is there part of you that is sort of itching to get to those locations? No, because I had a defined path of what I wanted to do as a PAO and, okay. and what I wanted to see. Um, I knew I wanted to be a carrier PAO. That was the, that's the pinnacle job in a, in a public affairs officer's career in the Navy is to go serve on an aircraft carrier. And I had that in my mind that that was what I was going to do from day one of being in the community. So for me, I knew that that's where the operations would, would lie. Little did I understand back then that I'd have a better tour on my amphib, on an amphibious assault ship, than I did on my carrier, just because I, I really I really dug working with Marines and Navy at the same time. And I, I and then that was just a better tour for me. It was on the USS Boxer. Um, but at the time, I, that was just what my goal was. There was never a part of me that was like, oh, gosh, I really want to go to Iraq and Afghanistan and be a part of the fight. I would have. Like, if, if I'd been called to go do that, I would have done it. But I think in my mind, I was just focused on where the Navy needed me and where I thought the the operations would would lie for me as a as a communicator. I really wanted to be in the most challenging positions that our community would provide. And I didn't want to be stuck at the Pentagon. And I'm still haven't done a Pentagon. No, sure. I understand. (laughs) I guess and again, maybe it's my my infamiliarity with with the Navy. I mean, I would equate a uh, carrier to the, to the idea of a division in, in the army. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, there's a 10 of them, right? Like 10 major divisions. That's right. It, right. So that, not, there's only a handful of carriers out there that I'm aware of. Uh, but I say all that to say that, you know, understanding that experience, you know, of getting to that job was there. There were a lot of other jobs before then I needed to do include go to combat on my own. Um, you know, so, uh, I was. It, it's. I find it interesting that most of the, the the folks in the public affairs world I knew and that we've interviewed on the show have always sort of thrived in that. Let me get into Iraq and Afghanistan kind of deal because that's where all of the action is. But you are seeing just a, a completely different side of that. Well, and you got to remember that as a, you know, like Amy Forsythe, for an example, she's a prior Marine. And so she on the show. (laughs) Yes. Yes. And so she did go to Iraq and Afghanistan, but as a Navy person, I, I, I would, I would bet you would be hard pressed to find that many Navy PAOs other than Amy who have 
deployed in Iraq and Afghanistan. There's probably a tiny few, but for us, the the pinnacle of our operational job is at sea. I mean, gotcha. we're going we're going to, you know, we're going to do our war fighting um on the water. Whereas you know, so I'm not going to go and be land-based in Iraq and Afghanistan. So that's just not part of my, um, right. okay. that's sense. not part of my pipeline. Yep. Makes sense. Um, you end up on the USS Nimitz, correct? I did. That was where I did my carrier public affairs tour. Yes. All right. And what was that like? It was very, very challenging. So I got to that tour in 2016, fresh off of a horrible breakup. So now we're going to go back to the personal life. Um, my dog had died. Um, I was alone and I decided to buy an RV because someone said, Oh, you should buy an RV because you're never going to be home. And I was like, okay, I'll do that. I'll buy this piece of shit RV. Cause I'll lowball it and not know what I'm doing. Another probably crazy decision. And looking back on, I'd never be with my husband if I hadn't made this bad decision, but, um, so I, I buy a, a piece of shit RV that breaks down even on the way there and have to like get it towed and all these things. And I just came there and I was, I was pretty depleted to be honest with you. in in 2016, when I got to that carrier tour here, it was, I'm supposed to be on my milestone 04 tour. And, uh, my boyfriend of a year had just broken. I was divorced from my first husband and, I had been with this guy almost a year. He unexpectedly broke up with me. So I had no one. And here I am almost 40 and single living in a piece of shit, broke down RV. My dog had died uh, that summer on the way there. Um, oh, oh, like driving out there. Oh, I had to it's put my dog down. song in the making right here. It was horrible. It was pathetic. Like I had a neighbor, you know, bless her heart. I mean, Linda who rode with me. Uh, she drove my car while I drove the RV. I mean, we were, we were quite the pair going from San Diego. <laughs> yes. Up to Washington. Oh, and I, I love her to death. I mean, we had so many good talks and we really got to know each other. She's a retired police officer and, uh, but we didn't really know each other that well. She just offered to drive with me probably cause she felt sorry for me. Cause she was like, how are you going to get your car and your RV all the way from San Diego up to Washington? I'm like, I don't know. Maybe I'll, I'll have it delivered. I think I had said like, maybe I'd get a car service to like get my car there and I would drive the RV. And then she's like, no, I'll, I'll drive your car. You drive the RV. And I'm like, okay. So, um, I, I, I drive the RV, the RV breaks down. Um, she ends up tr- taking a train back and I drive the car into, into, um, Washington state. And there begins my tour on USS, uh, Nimitz, uh, as the, um, department head. I was a department head in charge of 25 mass communication specialists and um, a couple senior enlisted. And yeah, uh, on a, on a very large staff, 3,200 is usually the number of uh, people. Uh, then when the uh, aircraft air aviators come on board, the air wing, you know, you're, you're talking 5,000 over 5,000 on deployment. And then plus the whole carrier strike group. So um, yeah, that, that was, that was, that was the beginning of that, of that tour. It was, it was definitely a rocky start and it, and it stayed rocky throughout. This was probably one of my hardest tours. What, what, what was the Nimitz doing that whole time? Were they out at sea? No, they were in the shipyard when I first got there. So they were in the shipyard and during that time, it was a lot of downtime because of that. And I learned a lot about hard hats and what, what, like what, what life is like is, and I'd been in a shipyard before on a few other ships, but this was 
a more intense shipyard period. It was delayed, delayed, delayed a few times, which worked to my advantage because I was told I was going to deploy pretty quickly on workups. They call them workups. So before you go underway, um, you do all this, you know, cycle of training, right? You do all these different, we call sea trials and you do all these different exercises to get ready to go on deployment. Well, all that stuff got pushed to the right. And during that time, I started dating my now husband. <laughs> so I had this time to like get to know uh, Harry and and start the, the courting process <laughs> while at the same time, I'm trying to figure out how to lead. And to tell you the truth, Mark, I, I had led four community, you know, four, four broadcasters, four journalists, four, you know, photographers, maybe I had never been in charge of 25. Like I, I really didn't understand how to be a leader. And here I have 25 people and I'm with all these like, Oh, five department heads seasoned guys. Oh, and I was the only female too. And, and I just felt a complete, like a, a complete imposter. I did. Um, and I, like I said, I was, I was, I was kind of pathetic and, and, <laughs> and, and just sad. And, and it was, it was really, really hard. Uh, those, that, that first few months, luckily my husband was there uh, for the first part, but then when we started going underway in the deployment, that's when things got really, that's when shit hit the fan and things got real. Well, let's get to that then, because I like the real stuff. Okay. So first. Yeah. So we ended up going uh, underway. And as we started to go underway, it became abundantly clear that I had a lot of growing up to do as a leader. Um, I was passive aggressive in terms of like, I was not good with, uh, what would you call it? Um, crucial conversations. I, I wasn't really good at being able to express, uh, when I had issues and I didn't involve my XO early and often. I didn't, I didn't trust him looking back. I should have, I, it really didn't matter if I didn't trust him or if I did what I should have done is told him the problems that I was having and the ways in which my leadership was being questioned. And then I should have asked him if the ways that I was dealing with it were appropriate because then it wouldn't have just been me, but instead I didn't think I had anybody to go to again. It's, you know, I think I kind of fall back on not on, on not being open and not telling people about things that are going on until the, they just get to a point where they blow up on me. And, and that's kind of what happened is that it got to a place um, where, you know, into the deployment now after, you know, several months of workups and my XO starts getting word that I'm, there's some people in my department that are not happy with the way that I'm leading. And I knew these problems existed and I thought that I was kind of keeping them at bay and I was handling them, but uh, apparently I, I certainly wasn't. And so he took matters into his own hands. He wrote me up. Um, he wrote me up on a lot of things that I was able to explain to him once we were able to sit down and he understood. But at the same time, again, I didn't let my chain know what was going on. I kept them in the dark because I was afraid to fail. And um, I was afraid that if they understood how all the problems I was having, they, they wouldn't want to deal with it. They just wanted me to take care of it. And so he threatened to fire me, but he didn't. He said I had a lot of tribal knowledge and he, and he didn't want, you know, he didn't want to let me go. And he wanted me to give me a chance to lead. And, and really, I'll tell you the truth, Mark, what I learned from that experience was that you can't ex 
hold these super high unex, unexpected, um, unrealistic standards. You really have to understand where people are at and meet them at that level. And I started to back off a little bit and I started to realize that maybe some of the things that I was expecting out of my team was a little bit too ambitious. And I was, and I was pushing them a little harder than what they were ready to do. And then I was pushing them harder than what even my leadership needed them to do. And once I understood that and I backed off, things got a lot better. So I was able to fix a lot of the, the issues towards the end. Um, but it was definitely hard. I, I was involved in a power struggle between me and my division officer and the whole team saw that. And unfortunately I let that bleed over uh, into some situations that, that I, that, that truly I, I, I do regret. Um, but I'm so darn glad it happened to be honest with you, because it has changed the way I lead today because of it. Like I'm a different person. I lead differently now. I communicate differently. And if I hadn't been tested like that, I don't think I'd be the person I am now. I wonder, you know, uh, in this whole sort of trial and tribulation thing, you know, you have this job that you want so badly. Um, did you ever think that maybe you just weren't cut out for it? I mean, how much did you question yourself in this whole thing? Yes, there were definitely times when I was out there that I thought, I just don't have what it takes. Other people can do this job, but I'm not good enough. Um, I think that because of the trauma that I experienced as a child, um, I tended to always blame myself and I still, to this day do that. I'm, I am the, I am so much more critical of myself than I am of anybody else. And I think that I constantly had to say, am, am I cut out for this job? But at the same time, I also felt like I'm a, I love to tell stories and I love good product. And I love the the, 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 the feeling that you can get when you, when you bring someone's story to life, it's such a, it's such a satisfying feeling. And so I knew that I was cut out to be a storyteller. Did I question whether or not I was cut out to be a leader? Absolutely. Because I'd never led before. I wasn't a natural born leader. It wasn't like I had been trained in high school and college and everything that had led up to my life to say, this is where I should be. And so I definitely didn't feel like I was on the same level with my peers at all. But at the same time, I worked very, very hard. I delivered every product that we were expected to deliver. And I learned how to properly lead. I learned how to communicate when I was having problems and how to share more. It really brought me and my XO closer together, to be honest with you, because I had part of my remedial remediation was I had to give them updates on how things were going. Like every week I had to let them know what was going on. And so I started just being really open about some of the struggles I was having. And we would have these heart to hearts and we would talk about the things that I was struggling with. And I, I think that ultimately it, it, it helped me. And I mean, I've kept in touch with this particular XO to this day. And, um, you know, I'm really glad that he didn't kick me off the ship and he gave me that opportunity uh, to fix it and to, and to write the ship, so to speak. And we ended up, I mean, we won like 18, 19 communication awards, um, we, we were a rock star team. I mean, that like our, we were known like across the waterfront as being like one of the, the you know, the top carrier public affairs teams. And, you know, I, I credit a lot of that to the fact that we did really have great people on my team and we always made the mission. It was very hard. Public affairs, 
they just, they want everything out of you. And you can talk to any PAO about this. It's like, no one really understands what we do. And everybody thinks that they can be a communicator. They always, everyone thinks they got the answer for what we should, how we should say something, where we should say something, how much of what we should say something. So you're constantly having to adjust expectations and having to meet deliverables for multiple bosses. And so that's what makes our job stressful. It's not so much the combat, like getting shot at. It's more just understanding how to prioritize everything that's being thrown at you and go, okay, I can do this, but I can't do this. And then who do you disappoint and how? I mean, you know, leadership 101. Well, it's interesting. I mean, I wonder, did you, I know you had conversations, you had mentioned you had conversations with the XO and other peers. Did you have conversations with those that you were leading with your subordinates about everything that had went on? Oh, definitely. I had many conversations with my senior enlisted. I had conversations with my guys. I I was I was pretty open about what was going on. And I'll tell you, towards the end, I just made sure that they the guys didn't see the issues that I was having with with my number two. I think that was the problem is that it was very obvious the tension between her and me. And I knew that as the, as the leader and as the more senior person, it was up to me to change that and, and to fix that dynamic. Um, and so I, I just, I did everything that I could to support her. Um, I support her to this day. We're, we're still in touch. And I feel that by being as open as I was about it, it definitely, I think, I hope anyway, it, it, it was helpful for them. Um, I was, it was definitely where I was really, you know, like you say, I I had to, I had to fall. I mean, I had to, I had to fall and I had to be not the best leader all the time, but at the same time, I, I would rather have had that opportunity and been able to grow from it. than like I say, some people, they just get, you know, they just kick them off and kick them off the ship and say, Nope, you can't hack it. See ya. We'll find somebody who can. And I think that's unfortunate because it doesn't give people that opportunity to grow and to lead. I mean, I, I don't have anywhere. In fact, I don't have any of these issues now in charge of seven people in a very much more stressful environment and at a much higher level now. Um, and I and I credit that to all the lessons learned um, from that job. I mean, there's just things I don't do now, um, you know, because because I had that experience. Well, how much did you take it to the next deployment um, that you went on on the Boxer, which was that amphibious squadron? Oh, thing? Boxer was before Nimitz. Um, okay. And w- well, when I was on Boxer, I didn't have any of these issues either. Again, I had a very small team and I wasn't gotcha. as and I didn't and my my scope of responsibilities was much more um, was much more limited. I kind of, you know, I, I that the going from a amphib to going from a carrier, especially because of the DV program. That's the hardest thing you do as a carrier PAO is managing um, the DVs and every fleet will send you tons of people that descend upon your ship. And you have to basically convince an entire ship that this is something that they want to do when, when nobody wants to really do it because it takes away from operations. Um, and it's not that they don't want to do it. It's just, it's, it's very tough to yeah, manage. Uh, who were some of your more notable uh, distinguished visitors that came by? Uh, well, we would get anybody from actors, uh, famous people sometimes. I mean, Woody Harrelson was on one of the ones I was on. Yeah, that was actually when I was out there as an assessor. So after this carrier tour, 
you know, so I do the Amphib tour, you know, Amphib PAO, that's, you know, Marines and Navy. Um, I, I do that one. I do the carrier PAO and I did some grad school here and there in between this. Then I go on to be an assessor. So I got to be the grader that does, um, that assesses the, the amphibs and the carriers, which was really rewarding because I knew, I, I knew all the pitfalls. I knew all the things to avoid. I knew what good pro- products look like. I knew what bad products look like. I had all the right um, templates. I, I knew how to give media training. I knew how to do the things that I, I felt would make a successful carrier PAO. And I got to be a part of um, this program that would help train public affairs officers on how to capture um, uncontrolled motion at sea for uh, Russian and uh, Chinese vessels who decide to um, sneak up on our ships and get very too much too close. And we call them unsafe, unprofessional interactions. And that was a really rewarding opportunity to, to learn how to properly capture those moments um, to basically get in front of the narrative and, and show that uh, who the aggressors were and who were the ones who were um, unsafe and, and unprofessional at sea. So um, to answer your first question, to go back to that, I mean, did I share enough with my people what was going on? Maybe not. I mean, looking back, there was probably more that I, more that I could have shared. Um, it was a very traumatic experience for me, to be honest. And it took me a long time and to process what had happened and, and to kind of move through it. But like I said, I, I, now I don't have any regrets about it because I know it made me, made me better. I mean, when you look back on it, what was what was tougher for you going through your own sort of personal struggles at times through your career or this professional struggle that you went through? Um, oh, that's such a great question. I, I, I honestly think that they they um, they enter they inter, intertwine because your, your personal struggles are your, what I call your trauma. So I've been diagnosed with complex trauma. And complex trauma is, is means it's a series of events that have happened in your childhood or may have happened, maybe not in your childhood, but it's not just one thing. Like somebody gets shot at one time, that's a one-time event. But when you've had um, abuse, whatever kind of abuse that happens over and over and over again, repeatedly, and, and there's no escape from it, it goes on for years, um, you, 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 can, you develop certain responses and I'm still, like I said, I'm in therapy now. I've been on it for about two months now. I go every week and we're just now starting to kind of unpack what those impacts are and, and what, uh, what, what those effects are. So I would argue that the biggest challenges that people have, I believe come from both come from things within them that they haven't processed and worked through that they carry to the workplace and that impact their ability to lead, um, impact their ability to perform the mission and to react to certain situations. So I would say both. There, there was the professional struggles, but those professional struggles were rooted in, in, in the trauma that I hadn't been able to process and work properly through. Now that you're done being a, a sort of a, at least at this point in your career, I don't know if you know that you're done being a PAO at sea, so to speak, or at least on a ship, you're, you're going to move into something else. Um, you know, before you get to those, those other missions, were you sort of excited that you were going to do something that wasn't on a ship or were you sort of bummed out? 
oh no, I got to go to NATO. Like I was totally stoked. I was like, whoa, I'm going to work with all these international nations. And yeah, but that oh, sounds great. Like, I don't know if I would, I mean, me, I'd be skeptical on the surface. No, I mean, think about how relevant we are right now. I mean, well, yeah, I mean, but you couldn't have planned for that. <laughs> no, but I knew that's true. Um, I'm trying to think of when I got orders here. So I got, because I was in um, Germany uh, for four months as we went into Ukraine, or as, as I'm sorry, as Russia started their unprovoked attack on Ukraine. And right. so um, I'm trying to remember when I got the orders, did I know? No, you're right. I didn't. Um, they, they offered me Marcom at, at my last job. And I remember just thinking like, well, I'm, I, it was in another adventure, Mark. It was one of those things where I was like, whoa, I've never been over. I've never served. I mean, other than my time in the Iceland, you know, I've never served overseas. I had an overseas duty station. I I've never um, worked with all these different nations, but to be honest, there were people who told me that NATO was a joke. I, I, I won't lie. There were people who told me like, Oh, it's just a bunch of people networking and hodgepodging and blah, blah, blah. That is not what I experience every day at all. But that's what I was told. And so I was a little prepared for this to be a joke of a job. And my, right. I remember my, my predecessors like, Teresa, this job is so busy. And, and Eric is like my predecessor. He's kind of a cool guy, you know, he's just pleasant and nice. And I was like, that's just Eric. He's just telling me it's busy. It's not really that busy. And then I get here and I'm like, oh my God. There's like constantly something to react to, something to respond to. This is such a dynamic theater with so many things that are going on. I mean, you, you I mean, there's, there's like Russian spy ships happen, you know, in our, in our, in our region, there's, you know, Baltic sea activity. There's all this different things, critical infrastructure protection, all these things that we're doing that are so incredibly important. And all these NATO countries are now, so joined up together to, in my view, um, stop something very bad from happening that could possibly happen potentially. I mean, it already has happened in Ukraine. And so I see this as a very relevant place to be. And I, I think I'm exactly where I want to be and where I should be. So, and I believe in the mission. What is the mission? <laughs> okay. No, great question. I, mean, I just, you know, it seems so nebulous to no for, for anybody who hasn't ever worked in, let's just even say it on the small scale, Pentagon OSD, right? Like if you've never worked mm -hmm. there, you don't really understand what they do day to day. Right. Right. Oh, they run the military. Yeah. Right? Like it's the it, same thing. NATO is like a nebulous concept. It is. Because I've never worked there. And I would, what does NATO do? Uh, so we have. Know, sit um, around with Kofi Annan and just. No, you know, no. All day long, have, what are we doing? So. We have ships. We have four standing naval task forces. So each country, you know, our, our NATO maritime nations have contributed their assets to perform operations at sea as part of um, four standing naval task forces that I believe rotate out every six months. So we are constantly at sea performing different exercises and different operations. Um, so it's the same kind of stuff that you would do in a single country, right? You do interoperability, you do 
different drills to basically strengthen your skill sets in the different warfare domains. And as a communicator for NATO, it is my job and a year-long security assistance mission called Operation Sea Guardian um, in the Mediterranean. So we're out there basically patrolling the waters, keeping them safe, and ensuring that if Russia or some of these other nefarious actor does something, we're there to respond. Um, We are still, like I said, we're not at a point right now where we're at war. Um, But I do believe that the training and the readiness and the things that we do day to day will put us in a position so that if something does happen, um, we're prepared to respond. Um, And I will say that I have never been at a place where I think like, wow, something could, could really shake out. Like there, there's certainly a potential at some point in the future, based on what we've seen in Ukraine, that this conflict sadly could spill over to a NATO nation. And if a NATO nation is attacked, I believe it's, don't quote me, but like the article five treaty that says, if you attack this NATO nation, then we will respond, we'll be obligated to respond appropriately. So, um, it definitely puts an added pressure and tension in the region because this is a, this is a pressurized situation. Um, I mean, when the, when the war in Ukraine first happened, I mean, it was a big news item and I know now it's kind of died down, but I mean, there's still people dying over there. I mean, there's still a conflict that's, that's happening and there's still, um, support that is that I feel is needed uh for that conflict. And I don't want to get into all the the geopolitical, you know, sure. nuances of that. I mean, I really want to stick to what I do as a as a communicator, but I will say that having a mission that I believe in, having leadership at Marcom, at Allied Maritime Command that I trust and that I support has has been a game changer for me. Um I haven't always felt this way. And I think I've said that in a couple of my social media posts. I, I've had a lot of jobs sometimes, sadly, where I didn't necessarily go along to get along or I didn't always agree with what we were doing. Um, but this is not one of those jobs. Um, I, I support what we're doing. And I think that we, we've we've got to be ready because we, we really just don't know what, what will happen. That That's the sense that I get there. Yeah, no, again, I, I think that's a fair assessment. And, and I appreciate your desire not to... Uh, <laughs> make any sort of uh statement on uh the war in ukraine and and what it is and what it isn't because again that's a whole nother podcast uh in and of itself that uh i I would argue i'm not necessarily qualified to uh to discuss uh i certainly have an opinion but again whole different podcast so all that aside um you hold this job now um what is like next for you from from a military standpoint in the navy i mean um do you want to go back to a ship? Do you want to stay where you are? What's next? So as an 05, I'll, I'll never get assigned to a ship again. Um, I've, 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 I'm out of, I've qualified out of that stage in my career. So I would have to go to a fleet or a TICOM fleet command, like a third fleet, seventh fleet, where, you know, we're in charge of the ships that are actively at sea or a TICOM where we deal, deal with training and manning and equipping uh, the ships that go to sea. Um, those are the two competitive 06 maker operational jobs that I would desire if I were continuing to go on. Now, 
if I decide to retire um, in September or around September when I would be submitting my intent to retire, uh, then that sets me out. It takes me out of the game completely. Um, I am waiting to see how I how I feel, to be honest with you, and what's offered. Um, so I, I'm really on the fence. Um, it's 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 really hard because I'm a podcaster and I have an, a show that I'm very passionate about and. I don't need the money anymore, to be honest with you, Mark. I'm I'm financially <laughs> stable. <laughs> so this is not about the money anymore. It's really just about the love of the job. If you know, like I love Marcom and I like my my coworkers and I like my team and we all get along well and we all are passionate about the mission. And so if if I could continue on at Marcom or I could stay in the NATO family, um, maybe I don't know. Um, but I know that I'm going to have to make a decision and it's not going to be easy. I, I really don't know which way I'm going to go, to be honest. Uh, I, I think I'm leaning more towards retirement, but at the same time, if the right billet was to make itself available and, and I was to kind of get a sense of who the leadership would be, I mean, of course they can change a million times, but you know, having, having good people around you and having the right boss really makes a big difference. And so, um, I, I might get, be convinced to, to continue on, you know, depending on what the offer is. Um, let's talk about the podcast, um, All right. the stories of service. Um, look, you've been doing this for a while now. Um, mm-hmm. and, um, I saw on your, your LinkedIn, you had over 3,500 podcast downloads. So you're, you're well on your way to creating something that has a lot of movement, um, why'd you want to start it? How did you come about it? And, and what do you hope to accomplish with it? Great question. It's so funny. Cause it's like, I can't believe we spent the, all this time up until now, not even talking about my podcast, but my operational career. It's, it's thank you so much for number one, for giving me the opportunity to reflect back on some of that stuff. It, I don't talk about it ever. And it's, it's interesting to, to, to have those, those conversations. I would argue, sorry to cut you off, but I would argue that a lot of the things that you're going to talk about in your podcast are foundationally built from your operational background. Yeah, no, you're right. You're right. Um, so I started the podcast, um, two years ago and it got started because truthfully I got asked to write a chapter in a book. Um, Karen Hills Pruden, she's a career coach. She approached me on LinkedIn. You know, I had started off very active on Facebook. I had a blog since 2014 And then I started moving some of my content over to LinkedIn and it started growing through that process. um, I was approached to write a chapter in a book and that was such an amazing experience. And so it just kind of built, right. Started with the, you know, the blog since 14 active on Facebook. And I'd always been into advocacy and animal protection causes. I protested outside of puppy stores and, you know, I've, I've, I've had um, experiences at the state legislature at city council. I've, I've done some of that stuff. So, um, it wasn't until I um, wrote the book chapter and I was also the public affairs officer for the Sea Services Leadership Association. And when COVID hit, we started doing all these webinars online and I started hosting some of the webinars. So I started going, wait a minute, like I could do this on my own. <laughs> like I could have my own guests on and talk to people. I don't, I don't have to do this through a nonprofit. I, I, I can just ask people that I find interesting to come and talk to me. And it started with Tiger King, actually, because I had a lady on who everyone Tiger King came out during COVID. Everybody was, oh, my God, Carol Baskin and, and, and whatever that guy's name was. I forget uh, their feud. And I was like, it's not about their feud. Joe, um, 
Joe, oh, Joe, Joe Exotic. Joe Exotic. Joe Exotic. I knew there was a, there was yeah, like a, yeah. Well, everybody made it into this, you know, joke and this campy joke, but at the core of it is animal abuse and is, and it's the, it's the captivity of, of, of tigers and these pay for play, you know, schemes where these poor tigers are ripped away from their mamas and forced to be these little petting machines. And, you know, and, and Carol Baskin has been uh, this, this, I mean, she's a little quirky in, in herself, but she's, she's a damn good spokesperson and advocate for this cause. And I just watched her and then watched how they pitted the two of them against each other. And it disgusted me the way they exploited her. So my friend, Kathy, who I knew from animal advocacy world agreed to come on to a webinar, a webcast with me on Skype. And I, it was the first one I did. It's like, you can go down to like the bottom of my YouTube and you can see my conversation with Kathy. And, um, oh, I loved it. I was just like, oh my gosh, like I can have these conversations about subjects that I'm passionate about for an hour and, and hear their story and, and, and hear about things that I want to learn about. And, and it was just so inspiring and thought, well, I could, I could do this. And, and so I just started learning about how to podcast. I had some mentors, uh, Jose and Mohawk Matt, uh, they couple guys that I was writing back and forth with. They're both broadcasters. And um, I just decided to do it. And I wanted to do it from the point of view of service as a way to move past trauma. You know, obviously trauma is a big part of my story and part of why I do what I do and, and kind of the place where I start from. And I thought, you know, when you're in service to others and you're part of causes that are bigger than yourself, you can really elevate yourself and move past your shit. Like everyone has shit. We all have trauma. Nobody is, nobody goes through life unscathed. And so if we can just find things that we're passionate about and find ways to make our world a little bit better, you know, not a lot better. I mean, cause you know, you can't, can't change everything overnight, but just move that needle a little bit. And so that was what I thought. I thought I'm going to bring people on who are doing something cool to move the needle. I don't know how or where or when or what type of, I don't care if they're famous, they're not famous. I mean, I, I do want Lewis Litt from Suits. Oh my God, I gotta have him on. I love that guy. Um, but, uh, you know, I just wanted people on that were fascinating and would bring people an awareness and an understanding about something that they hadn't thought about. They hadn't seen it like that before. I want people to walk away from my show and go, Oh, I never thought about, you know, animals and national security, or I never thought about those command investigations and how you don't get to choose the witnesses or why you can't record your, your debrief from your, uh, you know, from your senior leader. I mean, I, I actually recorded my last one because we did it by phone and I still have it. And I want to listen to it and make sure like, you know, what was that feedback like? Did I, did I say the right things? I mean, you know, so just little things like that. And I, I wanted to be able to hear people's stories and then use those stories to basically further the collective and elevate consciousness. Well, look, and again, I think that it, anything tied to service, obviously, you know, uh, has a, has a higher calling, right. Or, or, or a better purpose than what, hopefully a better purpose than what the people who are, who are doing it are, are there for, right? I mean, that, that's, a, that's in a nutshell, in theory, why you chose to put on a uniform, right? There's right. a bigger service, there's a bigger calling. There's, there's, and, and while you're talking about serving dogs or 
you know, uh, you know, trafficked youth or whatever it may be. We're just talking about, you know, serving the country and, and democracy and patriotism and all those other things. So I think that I think that that's, you know, unique. And certainly there there is a, a, a place where uh, a lot of us hope to do something of service and, and or at least give back. And there's a platform there, you know, for people to share that. And I think that's that's pretty awesome. I mean, you know, we just share the only thing we're sharing here is your individual story, the guest's individual story, which, you know, uh, I, I think has holds a ton of value, obviously. But, you know, again, uh, I, I appreciate the fact that you are in this sort of niche spot where not a lot of other people are operating. And that's purely just from a podcasting perspective. Uh, I think that's the goal. You got to find a place where not many people are residing and then draw them to it uh, for any given reason. And and that's how you sort of build a, a foundation. Um mm-hmm. You know, for for the hazard ground, it's just always been about, you know, nobody would have, in theory, nobody knows Teresa Carpenter's story until they listen to this, right? Like they don't they don't get to hear all the minutiae, and it's in your own words. It's mm-hmm. it's it's the way you've told it. So uh, it's a first person you know account uh, of your story, and and I think that's always unique because it's your perspective, not anybody else's. And um, you know, I, I I wonder if you will start to pivot more to, um stories about military people and what they've gone through. I know some of your guests are military, but not all of them, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. I wonder about that too, because, um, you know, as I, as I kind of further go down this road, I, I do see there's this, this common theme in a lot of my shows of trauma and, you know, there's, I'm I'm trying to almost normalize that word because I think that it sounds so bad and it's so stigmatized, but when you think about it, we, we all have these, these struggles in life and we all have these things that we need to figure out how to work through. And, you know, I'm on a kind of a thread now about command investigations and are they fair? Um, And I've had a couple of people on who are talking about this issue and I'm going to have a gentleman on Tuesday who's part of a foundation where he helps people who have been traumatized by their investigations. And I I really want to dig into that issue because I, I think it's central to helping people heal is if they think that the process was um, just, just. Flawed or, well, yeah. you know, you know, see, you know, the problem, but here's the problem. Okay. And, and I'll give you, you know, just Mark's view of the whole thing. The problem is, is we've become an over-investigated military. Everything requires an investigation. Everything. Yes. And that is where the problem is, because the more you do it, the more you find loopholes, the more you find the more the boundary of the edge gets pushed further and further and further, the more it's, hey, let's just hurry up and do that. We do it too much. So because it's become routine, now we just want to speed the process along. We've become an assembly line of investigations within our service ranks. And it's a problem because we've Mm -hmm. never actually decided what meets the merit of an actual investigation in people's time that warrants it properly. So, right. uh, yeah, that's, that's, the, that's problem number one and why people's investigations and the process is flawed is because we do it so much that now we just want to get it over with. Yep. Right. I just want the quickest solution to make this go away. And I don't want to actually figure out if there's a real problem here. But that's because we don't understand people. We don't take the time again. It kind of goes back to what we, to go full circle with what we said about earlier, I was just a number in this med board process. I wasn't 
an actual person that needed help, that needed someone to talk about my, my trauma. Like I, I needed to, to talk to somebody. I needed therapy or, yeah. or something. I mean, um, I, I struggle. I genuinely struggle with, is it the military's job to fix you when you're broken or do we need just competent, ready people to be able to be the war right point. There, there's, uh, there's a there balance is, there. I don't know. There, the is, there is a balance. And I will say that I don't, it is not the military's job to, to give me the care that it's now giving me. I, I would be quite honest in saying that. Like, I don't, I, I think that the issues that I had started in childhood and were exasperated by things in the adulthood where I just continue to revict, become re-victimized because yeah. I had never healed that original wound, right? Um, by by that you, admission, though, like 90% of the military should be in there. Well, I mean, <laughs> right? But 90% but here's the of the military Mark. would fall under that same sort of thing, myself included. So, But Mark, we have a disintegration of family. Like this is, this is a societal issue. Like, I just don't know if you're going to get people to join the Navy or, or not the Navy, but the military that haven't been impacted by, by, by traumatic experiences. You're not going to get this ready fighting force that we want because we don't have strong families in society. So much and well, and this, you know, the phone and the computer and everything. Yes. And yes. Tablet you know, have changed the, the dynamics of the youth that are, that are set up again. This is an entirely, I know, I know. I'm just saying that I think that it's not the military's job to fix our, our, our society and to give people this mental health care that they need. But the problem is, is that we have broken people in society. So how does the military take care of a broken person and get them to a point where they can at least be ready enough to go to war? Okay. I think the answer simply is this vet them strong enough to not let them in. So you don't have to fix them. But once you let them through the door, now is your responsibility to care for the entire soldier, sailor, airman, Marine, whatever mm-hmm. it is, you have to do a better. The problem is, is now yeah. and again, we're in the middle of a recruiting crisis. So please, please come in, come in, come in, come in, come in is, is now, you know, you're, you're creating problems on the back end that nobody cares about because, well, we get to brief Congress and we get to brief the media that recruiting crisis yeah. solved. You know, we, we don't care. We don't care that they're overweight. We don't care that they're not smart. We don't care that they're not efficient. We don't care that they, you know, have, have some sort of trauma or anything else. Just get them in uniform. We'll fix it down the road because it's worked for 275 years. Yeah, that's that's a bad philosophy. Times but really, really broken people can still do the mission. I mean, that's that's also yeah. the problem. <laughs> and and there, there are plenty of people, myself included, who have been diagnosed with PTSD, anxiety, and a whole bunch of other things. Mm-hmm. They're still highly functional soldiers. Yeah. You can go to work every day and do the job. You can still throw me in the middle of a combat zone and I'll be the most effective individual in that room. I don't have any doubt about it. That aside, you know, that doesn't mean that the government isn't responsible to fix some of the things on me that they broke. Mm-hmm. So no, no, it's, it's a, a tough issue. It is a balance. And, and I wish I, I wish I knew where to strike that balance. Cause I, I, I certainly don't, I can only say well, that. I, I think in your, in, in your podcast conversations is where you, where you figure that out. Right. I've learned so much from people like you, from having conversations with people like you on this show in understanding people. It's like you talked about, right? Like, who are the people that we're dealing with? We, I, I want to try to humanize more of this experience and not, it's not a word here, but robotize what we do because mm-hmm. we're so good and we're so efficient at making the warfighter. And I don't ever 
think we should slow that portion of it down. But still, there's a human process and a human element that we have disregarded in the last 20 plus years of combat. And we need to bring it back. Right. Because I can tell you that like winning, I mean, you, you are motivated to do the mission and to do whatever it takes to get the mission done when you believe in your team. And when you feel like you're like, I always go back to being seen, heard and valued when you're on a team where you're seen, heard and valued, you are loyal and you will do the mission. And even if it involves doing things that are very, very nefarious in combat, um, you will do it because you're loyal to that team and to the people around you to get the mission done. And I, I think that we owe it, you're right, we owe it to our, our military members to give them the care that they need so that they can, they can do that kind of job. But at the same time, there has to be, like you said, a screening process to where the, the worst of the worst and the people that really can't handle any kind of pressure, any kind of stress, um, are, are, are perhaps not admitted. I mean, there's definitely times, I'll be honest with you, Mark, where I wondered if I was in that later category, latter category. Like I thought, well, maybe I, I'm not, I'm not at the same level of my peers because my peers aren't, aren't having the struggles with stress that I, that I, that I, that I carry. Um, so, so I, so I definitely can understand um, needing that balance and, and where that would lie. So I agree with you. I wanted to ask you, you talked about that whole thing about being valued with, you know, your team members and everything. Is that something you learned in your trials and tribulations on, on the Nimitz? Definitely. Oh yeah. Um, it, it was, it was, it, it's definitely key to what helped me, uh, lead today was going back to that, that tour that, that very much, you know, make or break kind of tour and saying, okay, did I help my team members feel seen, heard and valued? And looking back on it, I, I think I was just trying to survive, <laughs> you know? And, and I think that, um, that's something that I carried in, with me to this day. And even in the way that I, I try to lead now, um, like for an example, I'm so busy with this exercise that I've got going on and I'm, I'm kind of in a tactical role now executing a lot of the, the details of that exercise, but I, I'm not going to let my team down and I'm not going to not do the things that I've got to do as a branch head, because that doesn't give them an opportunity to be seen, heard and valued for the work that they're doing. And so I, I definitely try to continue to sort of keep my pulse on how they're doing and, and what's going on with them. Because um, I realize that that's that you, you're just, you're not going to, you're not going to build a good team unless you, you, unless you're involved and you have to be involved as a leader. Uh, I wanted to touch on one more topic with you. Um, like most PAOs, um, my former PAO myself, uh, being outspoken is not something that we're shy about. Um, we talk, we want people to hear what we have to say. Not just when I say we, I mean us in general, but the, the story that's out there. We, we, you know, that whole journalism, let's shine light where there is darkness kind of deal. Truth will prevail, all that, you know, all those platitudes that, that have become a relic of a time gone by. Um, you've been very outspoken at the latter part of your military career, almost in certain cases to your own detriment. Um, do you regret any of that? Um, the platform you have now is fairly large. Do you, um, are are you worried about the Navy trying to, I don't like the way Mm -hmm. I want to phrase this. Are you worried about if it may cause more headaches, Mm -hmm. the military than necessary, um, because I think you, like me, you know, it's the same thing. It's like, 
hey, you know, I, I, I have a platform for a living, right? I, I have a radio mm-hmm. show. I'm on TV. Like right. I do, you know, and if somebody asks me a question, I'm going to answer it, you know, and you may not like my answer, but what you should generically believe in my heart, even if you don't like my answer, is that you know that I always have the best interest of the Army, of, in this case, you know, for me, the Georgia National Guard and, and my country at the forefront. Just because you don't like my answer doesn't mean that I have – I have left those values at the door on a specific mm-hmm. question. And so I always find it, you know, it's one of those things where, well, your objectivity of my answer doesn't change what the facts of the scenario are. You know what I'm saying? Like I, I just, you know, people's perception of, of the roles that we play. Uh, and I've said this repeatedly, they see people like me sometimes as a threat instead of an advocate. Whereas you can, yes. Out- to get your message across if we have a conversation and come to an agreement and understanding about what you want that to be. And that's what PAOs know, messaging, right? What's the message we want to put? What are you comfortable with? What am I comfortable with? What can we say together on the same page to communicate something? Um, But again, I think there's a sense that they, they, they see platforms and voices that aren't, that don't think the way they do and they see threat. Agree. And I will say that, it is definitely a fine line that I walk, especially as a naval communicator. It would be different if I were just a military member in uniform with a platform. But because I'm a public affairs officer, I'm a communicator, it puts me in a very um, more, I would say, scrutinized position um, for having such outspoken views. And it has definitely been an evolution for me to get to the point where I am today. It isn't like someone sees my social media today. They don't know (laughs) where I started from. They don't know, like I was told I had to shut down my Hawaii military pets Facebook page (laughs) because I got a complaint from a pet shop owner because I interacted with him on social media and he was not happy with the fact that I had cohesive arguments and I was polite and respectful he just wanted to retaliate. And so he writes my chain of command. I mean, I've, I've had that. I've, I've had other people write my chain of command. I actually save all the emails of people who who complained about me. Um, and so sometimes I, I do sometimes question myself too. So part of, you know, as I'm going through this very therapeutic process is wondering if my past has positioned me to always want to fight. And so I have to look deeply at the things that I take on and say, am I doing this because I'm just naturally geared because of my traumatic experiences to always want to advocate? I did a post about this just recently about how I'm sort of trying to decide the kind of person I want to become, because there's a lot of other people that have public platforms that don't have any controversy to what they do, right? They're, you know, a lot of them are um, like, let's say a pilot, right? A, uh, the first female Thunderbird pilot. I don't remember her name, but she's wonderful. She's a public speaker. She gets on um, and does all this stuff online and she's very prolific. Or you have a retired one star who writes a book about leadership, right? I'm just using those as examples. Like they're not controversial. They're, 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 they're just straight stick leadership, motivational advice. Whereas my stuff, definitely gears on the side of controversy. And so I have to decide as a, you know, as they say in the UK, a campaigner, um, as a campaigner, 
what kind of a campaigner do I want to be? Do I want to be somebody who has a seat at the table or do I want to be somebody who's throwing stones from the sidelines? And so how do you, how do you walk that line where you're pushing for change, but then at the same time, you're not a threat. And I will tell you that that is a constant balancing act because some people will always see you as a threat and some people will always see you as a hero. And depending on the circumstances, I feel like you could be one or the other, or you could be both. And so as I move forward, I'm just very careful about what battles I take on. And I definitely keep my mental health front and center. And I say to myself, is this worth me taking on? I mean, even right now, like I I really want this job to be milestone. I'm like, why is this not a milestone billet? Why is this not an 06 maker? I don't understand that. It's so relevant. And I'm sort of halfway fighting it and halfway not because I'm almost like, Teresa, you've, you've, you've taken on so many fights in your life. Maybe this is just one you can sit out. And so I'm really, you know, as I get older too, I'm starting to kind of go, okay, I still want to make a difference and I still want to do good work, but I maybe don't have to take fights all the time. Yeah. you know, it, it, yeah. I've run it a piss and vinegar. Like, you know, when you, when you had it all, when you were young, I have less piss and less vinegar. Uh, <laughs> yeah. I do have, I can barely control at my stage of life. So uh, let's hold on to what we got. But you know, I, I understand that. I, I think you, you learn prudence and you learn judiciousness and, and mm-hmm. uh, not every fight is one that needs to be fought. Right. No. Fight the fights you can win, fight the fights that need fighting. Um, and, and, you know, that's where you stand because I've, I've, I've used this phrase a lot. If everything's an emergency, nothing's an emergency. If everything's exactly. a fight with you, then nothing's a, nothing's a fight with anybody. Like they just look at you. Okay. They, they, you, you get to be ignored after a while. So uh, I, I certainly understand where you're coming from. I want to ask you a, a question that I ask a lot of our guests, um, but I think you'll, you'll have a very unique answer. What does um, Teresa Carpenter tell the 21 year old, 18 year old version of Teresa Carpenter now? Uh, if you can go back and tell, I mean, is it don't get in that first relationship? Is it, mm-hmm. you know, maybe uh, start your officer career sooner? What would you tell a younger version of yourself that was entering the Navy? Um, stop wasting your time on on unhealthy people. <laughs> I mean, I mean, honestly, like, all advice. <laughs> I mean, I there's just so much self induced drama that I got myself in as a, as a, as a young girl, um, that, you know, whether it be with friends that, that I was just constantly having, having issues with, or, or, or men that were not uh, good partners that I was choosing. Um, I, I would, I would also say, and, and then calm down, breathe, stop freaking out. <laughs> you know, I would say those are probably the things I would say, and I'd probably give myself a hug. <laughs> And say, calm the fuck down. Underrated to say the least. You know, I mean, look, um, it's it's been great to connect with you. I think that that you too, Mark. I, I love I, I love the the the, con- the concept of of you know uh, stories of service in the podcast because I think that a big part of you know this whole experience is being able to connect with other people, um, and it goes back to what we talk about in the military. You know, if you ask anybody who's left the military. You know, a lot of people tell you what they miss the most. Just miss being around the Joes. You know, like I, I realize that now at an 06 level. 
I just miss being around soldiers. It sucks not being around soldiers. I hate being around other people of my rank because I don't get along with most of them. That's number one. Number two, I feel like a fish out of water because I know they're all looking at me like, how did hell this guy get this rank? Um, But also, you know, it's just one of those things where where the rubber meets the road is where things happen. And I've always enjoyed being there more than I have. And and we all get to a point where we want to be able to make high level decisions, right? Because when we're at the bottom, we're looking up going, those people have no idea what the hell they're talking about. When I get up there and I make these decisions, oh, yeah, I know exactly what to do, right? You, you get that feeling. And, and I'm guilty of that as well. But, you know, in the same respect, I, I, while I embrace the idea of making tough decisions and being the one in the chair who, who gets to make those calls, still being at the ground level with, with the people to me is, is the dynamic of the military that, that will always strike me as, as my favorite. Me too. And it's probably why I've already cho- always chosen these operational tactical-ish jobs is because I just want to be where the rubber meets the road and, you know, nothing against the people in the ivory towers that do the, do those kinds of jobs. I'm just, I I don't think that's really where my sweet spot is. My sweet spot is, is being, is going on the trips and and seeing, seeing an action like this weekend, I'm going to Faroe Islands and going to do a day at sea on a, on a Danish ship. So I think it's going to be pretty exciting. And, you know, I, I, I get, I think it's, definitely an honor to do this work. And and you're right. It, you have such a dimmer perspective on it when you're at the top of the ranks that you looked up at as a child or a young woman and gone, oh my gosh, like it's so different being on this side of it. You just didn't, you had no idea. You had no idea the kind of, the kind of stress and, and issues that you would be dealing with as a leader. Um, Cause as a, as a, as a follower, you're just like, why are they making this decision? Why are they doing this? I don't understand. And then you get to this point and you're like, whoa, they got a lot of shit on their plate. They got a lot of other things to consider. Yeah. They got a lot of, you know, it's so yeah. it's not just my complaints that they have to worry about. Right. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Yes. So or for me to be misled by the fact that I'm not the most important person in uh, the universe. Yeah. Uh, it, right. Right. Exactly. So. Uh, they can get uh, stories of service anywhere they get podcasts. Correct. Absolutely. You can uh, just put in SOS, S period, O period, S period. And then you put my name, Teresa, T-H-E-R-E-S-A, Carpenter. Uh, you can find me on LinkedIn, uh, Facebook. I'm on uh, Instagram, Any anywhere you do your socials. Um, I've got 84 episodes, been going on for two years now. And uh, yeah, I'm I'm very happy with it. And honored that people continue to agree to come on so i'll just keep on doing it for as long as it 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 stays fun and i feel like it's it's providing a service i mean this is my way of giving back so yeah continued success with the podcast again reach out to her on linkedin that's my suggestion that's where all your good stuff is yes um and uh follow the podcast as well uh continued luck and success with the rest of the actual in uniform part of your (laughs) career uh and wherever that may take you and enjoy NATO and all the foreigners and everything else. And, and, uh, and, you know, and, and that stuff that's going on over there, do us all a favor. Okay. Uh, <laughs> let's find a more peaceful world. Amen. Look more platitudes. So I appreciate you being, here. I appreciate you taking time, uh, away from your schedule. So it's been great to get to know you, but, uh, you know, Teresa Carpenter, thanks for being part of the hazard ground. Awesome. Thanks, Mark. Thanks so much for having me. You've been listening to the hazard ground podcast hosted by Mark Zeno. If you have an interesting story to tell and you'd like to be on the show, send us an email at producer at hazardground.com. And if you like the show, 
don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review on Apple Podcasts. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time. Thank you.